I'm Joanne Ozug, and you are listening to The Road to Carnivore, Episode 5. In this episode, we are going to talk about food addiction. You might be wondering how this is relevant to carnivore, but understanding this is the baseline for changing your eating successfully long-term. I want to introduce the idea of hyperpalatable foods. These are foods that are excessively pleasing to our taste buds and the reward systems in our brain. And they are usually a carefully crafted and designed combination of carbs, sugar, fat, and salt. Think brownies, potato chips, fast food, pretty much anything that you have a hard time controlling yourself around. Most of the foods we are surrounded by are hyperpalatable foods, and they have really powerful effects on our brains and are often used to manage stress and change our emotional states. And if you do start getting closer to a carnivore way of eating, you're generally not going to be eating sugar and carbs. So understanding these addictive and hyperpalatable foods is really important. A lot of people limit these foods in the beginning using willpower, but that doesn't last over the long term. Part of what has eliminated my feelings of FOMO and feeling triggered by other people eating foods that I used to eat and love has been really understanding the addictiveness of the food we're surrounded by and knowing and appreciating that carnivore doesn't include the modern foods that are addictive by design. Food addiction is a somewhat controversial topic, which I understand because for a long time, Anytime I heard someone say sugar addiction or carb addiction, I thought it sounded ludicrous. How could you have an addiction to sugar or carbs? Addiction was for things like drugs or alcohol or gambling. But sugar addiction is real. Carb addiction is real. Food addiction has literally been shown by MRI scans of the brain. And there's a good chance that if you're here listening to this podcast, that you may have elements of food addiction to overcome. Because most of the foods that we encounter are intentionally designed to be addictive. And our biology works in a way where we are going to have a heightened dopamine response from these foods. I want you to think of a food that you tend to have less control over, a food that you may overeat or always want more of. Maybe it's some form of sugar like cookies or cake or ice cream. For me, it's definitely (laughs) all those. Or maybe it's something else like cheese or potato chips or something snacky, something you wish you had more control around or that you wish you could stop eating so much. Now I'm going to read how substance use disorder is defined in the fifth edition of the American Psychiatric Association's official handbook. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Number one, the substance is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control use of the substance. Three, A great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance, use the substance, or recover from its effects. Four, craving or a strong desire or urge to use the substance occurs. And the last one I'll share, use of the substance is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the substance. These are five of the 10 statements they share, and I will link to this in the show notes if you want to look at all of it. But for me, sugar fits all of those statements I just read, big time. Take the first one, eating more than intended. I can't tell you how many times I'd cut a cupcake in half and say I was only gonna eat half of it, and then I'd cut the remaining half in two quarters and then cut again until I ate the whole thing. I've always eaten way more than intended with a lot of things, but especially sugar. I had sugar cravings all the time, and controlling it felt really hard, even though sugar literally made me sick every time I ate it. It took me three years to get to a place where I've broken my addictive relationship with sugar, and 
I think most people would say that sugar is really addictive. This has been a pretty common sentiment for a while because it's true for most people. There are scientists who assert that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. There is a study called Intense Sweetness Can Surpass Cocaine Reward where they had rats that were addicted to cocaine and after the rats were given sugar, 94% of the rats preferred the sugar over the cocaine. And this preference was not surmountable by increasing the cocaine. There are many more studies by a group of Princeton psychologists who studied signs of sugar addiction in rats for years, and they showed that sugar is an addictive substance that causes changes in the brain and behavior in a similar way to drugs like cocaine, morphine, and nicotine. Facing food addiction was one of my biggest hurdles with doing carnivore because you're eliminating all of the hyperpalatable, high-dopamine foods. I think even with something like paleo or keto, you see a lot of people making keto treats with sugar alcohols and nut flours. And I'm not judging, I did that too, but you're not doing that on carnivore. No one fixes an emotional problem or bad day with a chicken breast. You go to ice cream or cookies or potato chips. I remember I came to a point where I was almost frightened by my addiction because once I started giving up sugar with willpower, my body got used to eating much less of it. So much so that if I did have sugar, my body would freak out. I got guaranteed diarrhea, a pounding racing heart for the rest of the day to the point where it would completely ruin my sleep, really bad acid reflux the rest of the night, a heavy feeling of nausea, and so much more misery. But I had such a strong addiction to using sugar to deal with stress that I would completely disregard those consequences and eat it anyway. I would pick 10 minutes of pleasure while eating it as being more important than the hours afterward that I was sick. The cue and relationship was so strong. And this is not surprising when you understand a bit more about what's happening in the brain. These addictions can be so strongly wired into the brain that willpower just won't override it all the time. Sometimes it can if you have really strong willpower, but long-term, willpower does not override the brain. And this is why diets tend to not work for people, because they are willpower-driven and telling you to eat this and not that, but they're not actually addressing any of the emotional components or helping you understand the nuances of the reward system in our brains. Early on, when I was just beginning to dabble with carnivore, I wrote the following in a carnivore support group. I said, My biggest obstacle to being consistent with carnivore is the boredom. I've always used food as the antidote to boredom in my life, using it as entertainment. Whether my day sucks or I'm looking for an excuse to go out to a restaurant, dopamine fireworks, sugary, starchy foods for much of my life have been at the center of improving my day. I once heard someone say that if the most interesting part of your day is food, you've got a problem. This resonated because I've historically been the person who spent a lot of time looking forward to the next meal or next outing. I've been working on this a lot for the past three years, ever since I did a Whole30, but it still feels like such an obstacle and I really want to make more headway with this. My reasons for doing carnivore are so compelling. No way of eating has eliminated basically all of my health issues like acid reflux, inflammation, and gut problems. I try to refer to these benefits often, but dang, every couple of weeks, I still find myself succumbing to the foods that give me that temporary excitement. You would think that the bodily pains from when I fall off the wagon would be compelling enough, but they're not. The emotional component is so strong. It's actually kind of fun to read that because I finally move past the addiction and I'm not triggered at all when I'm at a birthday party and everyone around me is eating cake. But I shared this with you because all of this points back to those definitions of addiction I read before. I basically say, 
I want to stop eating these things, but I feel like I have no control overriding these cravings because the food is so addictive. Food is way more addictive now than it used to be, and we have cues everywhere we go to eat. For most of people's history, we didn't have snacks everywhere. There wasn't a break room at work with a box of donuts. And now we sort of expect that we can eat everywhere and any time and that we should do that. Food is paired up with everything and people will almost push it on you, particularly at social events. It's amazing how if I go to a birthday party and I'm not eating cake, how many times people say, why aren't you eating cake? Don't you want a piece of cake? (laughs) That was really hard for me. And I'll talk about that more in the next episode. The cues to eat are strong out in the world, but also at home, especially if you live with a family or someone else who isn't eating the same way as you. I found a journal entry that I wrote during my transition to carnivore. I just had an unexpected bread binge after I smelled and saw my husband's food, and I wrote, I've experienced the greatness of carnivore in improving my health. I know that the bread I want so much messes up my gut and digestion, gives me acid reflux for the rest of the night, causes weight gain, and a slew of other things but I want it so much anyway. How can I want something that makes me feel so miserable and horrible again and again? It's an addiction. If you've ever heard that joke about the seafood diet, you see food and you eat it, (laughs) if you can relate to that, I hear you. I've been really triggered by seeing foods I'm trying not to eat. And in the lens of food addiction, this can feel like a really big hurdle to get over. So I think at this point, we've established enough that food addiction is a real thing. You can look more at the research and studies in the show notes if you want to explore more. But now I want to talk about what we can do about the addiction. There are a few different opinions about this. One solution that some people propose is abstinence, treating it as a true addiction that is remedied by not eating that thing ever again. And if you do end up eating it, it's treated as relapse. Someone who comes to my mind as a proponent of this thinking is Dr. Robert Siwiz. He calls himself the carb addiction doc, and he puts out great videos on YouTube that I recommend if you feel like food addiction is something you want to work on and abstinence sounds like it may work for you. I think this does work for some people, but my issue with this is that you're basically saying, I can never eat ice cream again. And that is really hard for me to sit with. It makes me feel extremely deprived. There was actually a time when I set a New Year's resolution that I wasn't going to eat sugar that whole year. And what's ridiculous about this resolution is I already basically wasn't eating sugar. I would have it maybe once every couple months, and I hadn't really been eating it very often for three years at that point. But about a month in, I became totally overcome by this desire for sugar and feeling upset I couldn't have it. And it got to the point where I started feeling really deprived and started binging on all sorts of savory things that I didn't usually eat, like croissants and cheesy bread. And guess what? I was stuffed with bread, but still wanted sugar anyway. I don't do well with this, I can't have that mentality, and I get really rebellious. So another solution that I personally believe in more than the abstinence drug addiction model is understanding what's actually happening with addictive desire when it comes to your brain and the food environment we're in, and using your prefrontal cortex to actively choose whether or not you eat certain foods from a place of freedom. There's a lot to unpack there, and we'll dive deeper into this in the next episode, but understanding this from all sides really helps, like understanding food addiction in the brain with our reward system and understanding how ridiculously rewarding the foods we are surrounded with are and how our biology just has no match against these hyperpalatable foods. We are going to go berserk for these foods, period. 
Someone who does great work in this area is Jillian Riley. She runs an online course called Eating Less Online. It's not specifically carnivore or really related to any diet like that, but I found a lot of the principles that she shared to be very validating for my own experience and helped me realize why straight-up abstinence without those pieces of true choice and freedom didn't really work for me long-term. Like I realized why setting that New Year's resolution of not eating sugar for the whole year backfired. What's funny about these two different ways of dealing with food addiction, the drug-like abstinence model versus this true ownership of consequences, is that the end result is pretty much the same. I generally abstain anyway from a lot of foods like sugar and grains, but I'm abstaining from a place of choosing and freedom for personally compelling reasons and knowing that I totally can have hyperpalatable and damaging foods if I want to. I just truly don't most of the time because I don't want the consequences. I really know and understand the entire package deal that comes with eating these foods. And even though they are really fun while I'm eating them, they are generally not worth it for me on the whole. To finish out this discussion today, I want to tell you what's happening to your brain and to your body when you eat these sugary, carby, hyperpalatable foods that we're surrounded by. Let's say you're driving out to the post office and you happen to notice a new bakery that just opened. You pull over and go in and you see the most delicious looking pastries and you buy a chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake bar and a brownie and they are amazing. Your brain lights up and your mouth lights up with sweets like this, particularly because it combines fat and sugar and carbs, which by the way, you don't find carbs and fat together in nature. So you leave the bakery and you drop your package off at the post office. The next time you have to go to the post office, you will probably remember your trip to the bakery last time, and you will start to get a desire for it. Driving to the post office becomes the cue for going to the bakery and getting dessert. And as you drive, dopamine is released into your brain and you begin to salivate, and you feel a really strong desire to go to the bakery again. So you go satisfy that desire by eating the dessert again, and it reinforces that cycle by releasing more dopamine and endogenous opioids, and it reinforces the cue and gets stronger and stronger. And it becomes more difficult to break this pattern because every time you have to go to the post office, that's a cue where your body literally expects to eat dessert, and it starts the digestive process. It can feel unbearably difficult to not have that food because you feel so compelled to eat. You may recognize this as an example of the Pavlov experiment with the dogs where he rang a bell every time he fed them and then afterwards noticed that the dogs would salivate just from hearing the bell, even when they weren't hungry. Dopamine was released into their brains when the bell rang. This is a trained behavior based on that cue of the bell ringing. If you go up to a random dog and ring a bell, it doesn't necessarily start salivating or expect food. So there's addiction as it relates to the brain and the dopamine endorphin cycle, but it's important to understand this as it relates to the body. For me, it's been really helpful to internalize the idea of biofeedback and our biology, which Dr. Saiwes talks about in a few of his early videos. He gives the example of if you're thirsty, you drink water. You don't need to measure out any particular amount because you don't know how much you're going to drink and you don't need to know. You have that biofeedback built into your body. Your body tells you when it's had enough and there's no incentive to drink excess water. This built-in biofeedback applies to meat too. It's what humans ate as the primary food for much of our history. And you've likely experienced this biofeedback where let's say you've eaten almost all your steak and you really want to finish it, but you feel like you just can't take another bite. But then the ice cream comes out and you can put away a bowl of that. 
or Thanksgiving. You don't want any more turkey after you're stuffed with food, but usually you can find the desire for some pie and ice cream. Your body has the biofeedback to naturally limit overconsumption of meat because it has built-in satiety signals for this combination of fat and protein. Satiety is the feeling of being satisfied and comfortably full after eating. Our body understands fat and protein and tells us when we're satisfied and when we've had enough. We don't have this natural regulation with carbs. We can eat huge amounts of things like bread or cookies. We can eat and eat and eat and eat. And I really like the Whole30 program's name for these foods, which is foods with no breaks. The foods that you can just continue eating because your body always wants more. These foods are not really nutritious and they don't activate our natural satiety signals in the body. They are more activating the endorphin system. And Dr. Saiwes talks about how we use carbohydrates to numb, soothe, and obliterate our emotions. They are extremely powerful. Eating ice cream after your boyfriend breaks up with you does change your brain state for a short time while you're eating the ice cream. But of course, there are negative consequences from the ice cream later on. And ice cream doesn't truly fix the situation. And this realization is what you need to clarify for yourself in order to start making different choices in those stressful emotional situations and to break these cycles of food addiction. In the next episode, we're going to talk about this and why it can feel so hard until you really understand how insane our food environment is. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to The Road to Carnivore. Head to my website, theroadtocarnivore.com to get my free guide, Joanne's Party Survival Guide for How to Not Fly Off the Rails and Eat All the Things. Handling social situations, holidays, and dining out were always the hardest obstacles for me to overcome with getting control of my eating. And I really hope these strategies in this guide will help you get some major wins when it comes to parties and gatherings. See you next time. <laughs>